Welcome back to the ownership economy. This week, Jahed is off in Davos, so it's just me alone. I took the opportunity to check back in with Sasha Keller from Onco and Jessica Van Meer from MinStars. I wanted to see how their two organizations are doing. And we took the time to walk through Sasha's new model for virtual on-chain option plans and how the initial 10 organizations here working with are using this new tool for shared ownership and governance. We then dive into how both entrepreneurs are thinking about shared ownership and governance within their own startups. We hope you enjoy the episode. Sasha and Jessica, welcome to the Ownership Economy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Martin. Good to be here again. Hi, nice to be here again. So we've got two founders, both thinking about community ownership, both with exciting updates on their ventures from the past three or four months. And so we wanted to bring them back and talk a little bit about how they're thinking about shared ownership and governance, both from the perspective of actually creating tools and then implementing these concepts within the organization. And Sasha, I think we should start with you because you've got a bit of an update on this new legal structure that you've created on a virtual on-chain option plans. Can you walk us through that in a bit of detail? Yeah, sure. So we made quite a bit of progress the last couple of months figuring out how to help companies take the first steps towards shared ownership in a way that doesn't, you know, force them to sort of jump into a DAO and like have no hierarchies and no managers and talk, everything is a token. But instead also, you know, not use uh, the traditional sort of rigid system of, you know, equity and options. So what we've built is this hybrid model, right? Where you combine the best of both worlds. And the, the thinking behind it is as follows. If you want to share ownership, what you really want to share is not so much an equity or security. You want to share economic benefit, right? At its core, that's what it is. So if that's, you know, if you ignore statutory protections and sort of governance, then that's the thing you want to share with your users or contributors. So what we've done is we've set up this system where you can have a restricted stock unit in the US as an incorporated or a virtual stock option in Europe, and you can tokenize it, digitalize it, tokenize it, and fractionalize ownership that way and tie ownership to actual performance, right? We've made it really simple for any company that's in the US and Europe that uses restricted stock units or virtual options to share ownership with contributors based on performance using the underlying compliant tool. And how is this different? So there's been a couple of paths that have been set up around decentralization. And I guess before we get into, I mean, this podcast talks a lot about decentralization, right? But before we get into the paths for shared ownership that are kind of the the ways that people have historically been thinking of this before you bring RSUs or stock options on chain, what are the, I guess we for both of you, and maybe Sasha starting with you, what are kind of the ideological reasons for decentralization or why does decentralization actually exist? So my perspective on that is that we we are heading into territory in the next 10 years where technological advances will really force us to rethink our social contract, right? In its entirety, like access to technology, distribution to, to technology and its sort of benefits and who controls and governs them. I think those are like the three big three questions in the next 10 years. And especially AI is going to bring us up more and more so, like who owns the stuff, who controls the stuff. And I think that's why we need to decentralize the control over these systems and distribute control based on your contribution to value, you know, not how many votes you can buy the size of your wallet, but like how much have you actually contributed and how much should you be able to control a system, whether it's technology or a wallet. You know? So I think that's a moral imperative to, to rethink all that. And yet the path that you're taking with these virtual on-chain options plans essentially limits the amount of governance that you're giving to folks, right? I mean, this is more just an economic benefit. 
And how is that different than the pathways to decentralization that people are familiar with? Maybe you could walk us through kind of the progressive decentralization that was originally proposed by Varian Fund and kind of the private node testnet path and how those are different than a digitized RSU. Yeah, sure. So first of all, yes, like sharing economic benefit obviously gives you no no more say in, in the governance of existing companies, right? But sharing economic benefit gives you more money. And in the current system, more money means more influence, quite simply speaking, right? So we're hacking that system. And I think, you know, this entire category of democratizing access to capital is dead in the water because it's just for rich white people. If you don't have money, you can't buy shares, you can't make more money. And so what we're doing is we're giving normal people, normal users that haven't previously had the opportunity to earn assets, a way to earn assets just by offering their time, right? And that gives them more money and then they can buy more assets if they want. That's sort of the logic and the thinking behind it. So an indirect way to claim governance. But yeah, the system shouldn't stay where it is today, right? So how does it compare to other approaches? I think like Jesse Walden from Varian Funds sort of first popularized this progressive decentralization approach and he's since updated it a little bit to be, I think, a little bit more pragmatic, you can say. But I think the initial idea was to, to start in steps and to take it yeah, one step after the other, right? And I think that still holds true. But yeah, what hasn't really changed enough yet in my mind is that the governance token, this basic component of the model is still there, right? And the governance token in crypto means it's just a way to circumvent securities law, right? And I think my view on this has been pretty strict from the get-go. I think it's a security, right? And it's been, you know, the governance token has been used as a way to bake in exits for VCs, and it's not really a governance or utility token at all at its core. And I think that, you know, if it doesn't get called out, at least we should. So that's still at the at the core of the entire thinking about governance. And I think that needs to change. And, I, you know, I'm seeing some changes in that space where some of these tokens aren't going to be tradable and transferable. They're soul bound. And yeah, the big difference here is if you use RSUs and VSOPs and tokenize those, you digitalize an economic benefit. And yeah, that's not a governance token but it gives you the ability to buy more assets to not necessarily in the same company, but at least you have a way for the company to start sharing ownership. And that's what we see as the first step for most of these customers. They don't really want to decentralize decision-making and governance. They want to have a way to get a community of co-owners first. And then we need to figure out what governance looks like as a next step. I think that's where we're at like in the, in the real world. Cool. Makes sense. And so essentially... The difference here between, say, a governance token, there's other differences too, right? Like these tokens that you're creating or these virtual on-chain option plans that you're creating and then building incentives around the program to incentivize particular actions for a particular stakeholder to take are non-tradable, is my understanding. They're held by the person. There's no secondary market for them. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And we're going to split out into more token types, so to speak. But we're not seeing a lot of the mar- from the market yet for anything else, you know. There's been a lot of intellectual sort of thinking and like theories on all these different token types, but the normal traditional companies we speak with, they're very far away from that, you know. So yeah, the governance token we have at the moment, the RSU VSOP token, it's going to be earned based on contribution. You can then connect it to a real world asset to make it, a, you know, something that's worth cash, or you can keep it as a utility token that is non-transferable, non-tradable, and doesn't have any cash value because it's not connected to an off-chain asset. You know, there's this flexibility. 
Cool. And you've got 10 clients now, right? That are using this or around 10 clients that are using it. Can you like break down abstractly what sort of clients those are? Like, are they labor marketplaces or the asset marketplaces? I heard you had a, a VC fund that you got on board. Like how, how are they thinking about creating kind of marginal actions or creating specific actions that, that stakeholders can take that, that create enterprise value? Yeah. So I think it depends on where these companies are in terms of maturity, right? So we have some that are really just starting out to build like new marketplaces that are supposed to be user-owned from the get-go. And there you have a more sort of sophisticated sort of founding or management team that thinks about shared ownership from day one. And they have different ideas about, you know, different roles of co-owners and that, I don't know, might like stay altered, for instance, as a hospitality platform owned by the host, guests, and neighbors, you know, they have five different types of owners, you know, that can earn ownership in the platform ways. And we support with a part of that, right? Or you have a learning platform, city as a school that's owned by mentors, teachers, families, students, you know, or a co-working platform, like one co-working that refers, you know, the supply side growth. So the more co-working spaces you, you sign up, the more ownership in the platform you get. So there's quite a lot of these similar sort of motivations to do with growth usage or yeah, retention, you can call it, right? So those are the primary three use cases around shared ownership. So they're pretty commercial and the moral argument plays into it, but you know, especially in the early days of marketplace and platforms is a commercial reason to share ownership as well. Okay. And the the actual option plan that you're giving, so does the company have to go through kind of a, a 409A evaluation? Like how does it how do you actually establish the strike price? Like are there tax implications of getting issued this? Like, is it long-term? Is it short-term? Have you figured those sorts of things out for these people that are just participating on a part-time basis? No, we don't help the, on the contributor side, right? You're just signing for an option, a virtual uh, stock option, and that's not optimized from our end. We've spent most of our time helping out the customers figure out how to set up um, these ownership, co-ownership incentives, right? So this is what we've started with, and this is what we spent most of our time on. But over time, I hope in the future, we can optimize the contributor side. It's just that everyone's personal situation will affect their tax taxes, right? So there's a lot that needs to be considered there. And we don't want to venture into that right now. But normally, I guess my question is a little bit simpler. It's more like when I get issued a stock option, you know, pretty much the same in, the, in Europe versus US, but it's a little bit different depending on jurisdiction. That stock option has to be issued to me at par value. If it's, or like, a you know, an external firm has to essentially establish a, a strike price or the current value, the current fair market value of the firm. If it's issued to me before, below that, I have a taxable event. Like, are you walking these clients through that? Or are they going to outside counsel to do that? Or like, how does it work the same way? Does it depend whether or not you're in Europe or in the US? Like, how does it work? Yeah. So we have a standardized virtual on-chain options plan, right? Which is sort of created over the last two years. And it's based on learning from lots of different customer projects. So there's some standardization in there, but the specific um, strike price, for instance, that you said, we walk you through it a little bit, but you have to get your own legal counsel as well, right? So it's not completely uh, standardized and automated um, to that degree. Obviously, we have opinions on it that we sort of impart, like, you know, you should keep the strike price as low as possible to maximize upside for the contributors. But, you know, in the end, that's sort of a decision you need to take as, as, as the company, right? Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And in these first 10 firms that you've brought on board, like what percentage of the cap table are they giving away? 
to start? And has it been, I guess, a, a follow up to that is, is, are the stakeholders that currently own a piece of that cap table, have there been problems in convincing the current cap table to actually allocate a portion to the community? Or has it been pretty easy for you to work with these founders and get them on board with this idea? It's been easy to get the founders on board with the vision, you know, shared ownership. I think everybody can get behind uh, from a moral and economic perspective now. But convincing shareholders and the existing cap table to execute on that, that's a different story, you know. And that's what we're still figuring out. So I think that will get easier. But what we've standardized is we have a standardized shareholder resolution that you can send around. We obviously, we've all raised venture capital in the team over at Onco. So we know how to manage investors. uh, We know how to raise capital. We know how to manage shareholders. So we can help out with that a little bit, but every situation is different, right? And what we've seen is that most companies start with a really tiny percentage, right? So you start with, I don't know, 0.2% of your cap table. And how we've designed this progressive decentralization approach now for for our customers is um, in three steps, right? You start building a proof of concept, right? Start sharing ownership with a core group of your users that are champions of your cause and um, that you want to reward anyway, right? Use own code to share ownership with them based on contributions. And now you have a solid case internally you can use to convince your shareholders, right? To expand the cap table allocation that's for your community. So you need to start building conviction, building momentum, and having data internally to share with your shareholders and the rest of the community to expand and the allocation for, for your community in the, inside the cap table. And what's the largest, like the, the latest stage company that's participating in this out of these first 10? So they're all um, at the startup stage. They're all uh, around like 0.2% at this point. And then some of them have bigger ambitions. They've already had a reserve of like 30%. Some of them have a smaller allocation that will be the max cap, like 5%. None of them have gone as far as saying, you know, I'm going to share 100%, right? Or even 50. So we ourselves, Recursive, GmbH, we are reserving 30% of our entire cap table for our community, which is massive. And yeah, we're going to walk the talk and share ownership. Cool. So walk me, so I want to kind of get into that and I want to pull Jessica into this conversation, but I think it's worthwhile to go back and talk about kind of this story of your last venture and where things didn't really work out and the decision to kind of exit, right? The decision to exit the venture. That was a decision made by both you or you and the VCs or like the money that the company just ran out of money or like what happened at the end of the venture? No, I was pretty much a decision that uh, I was surprised with. So I, the, the investor came, sat down with me and said, Hey, we don't think this relationship is working out anymore. Why don't you go somewhere else? Right. And I think that's how I played wait, out. Wait, they, they owned, they owned the cap table or? No, but um, you know, you know, it is, it's like strongly suggested for you to look for a new home. And then you like, okay. But you had control at that point. You were you still had a majority, or you effectively had controlled the board, or no, we didn't. It it was how do you say? Uh, it was a complex situation, you know. And I was acting in the interest of the company. I stayed around until we found a successor, and we made it work. And I handed it over. And uh, I think the working relationship was at a stage where it, made, it just made sense from both sides to part ways, you know. Yeah, and I guess the the. Thing that I'm trying to get at here is in that moment when you were kind of blindsided by this investor, like how did you feel? Like that you that the power had been taken out of your hands to essentially your baby had been taken away from you at this point. Yeah, I mean it's obviously not a pleasant experience, but pretty sort of professional person. I think I handled it fairly professionally in a sense of you know helping the transition, 
and making sure that we could move on. But at that point, for me, it was already clear we weren't going to align on the vision of sharing ownership using the model that I designed, right? Which was uh, progressively decentralizing ownership of the of the platform to make sure that we can get more trade partners on board and like get their capacity to be committed to the platform, you know, and to solve the supply side challenge. So I think it worked out good for for all of us, for everyone involved. Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask, right, is that I think like this pressure that gets put on founders, whether or not the VCs are in control, like, or their investors are in control. I remember back in 2010 or 2011, I walked into a board meeting. I still owned 55% of my company, but I sat down with my two board members. They were both investors in the company. So I controlled the board and I controlled the cap table. And they still said that I should get out of the company. And like, as a 24 year old, I think I was at the time or 25, you, it's, you know, you, you look at these people like they're smarter than you, even though they might not have been right. I mean, it ultimately ended up being a good thing and, you know, I made some money, but, but at the same time, you have this kind of sense of loss of control and losing your baby. And the reason why I bring this up is you've deliberately divorced governance and the right to protect against that outcome in this virtual stock option. And so it's just interesting to kind of think through why you've done that and why this is almost necessary in an early stage venture for an early stage venture to be successful. And I think, Jessica, you guys are going at MintStars through some of this thinking right now. How are you like, how are you thinking about when and how you want to set up shared ownership and governance? And what are some of the important attributes of such a program for you and your co-founders? Yeah, well, this conversation has been really helpful to me um, to hear from Sasha about what has worked for other people, which I'm sure was intentional from you, Martin, since you know that we're thinking about this. Um, So the process that we've gone through in terms of our thinking about shared ownership and decentralization has been definitely the progressive approach that we, when my co-founder and I started working on this, we were pretty new to the crypto space. We learned about DAOs, thought it was incredible, but quickly having looked at some other DAOs that existed and other platforms that were working in the creator space and particularly the adult space, saw that those platforms that were trying to approach this in a very purist way were not accessible to the users that they were trying to serve. So we saw, for example, one platform that was an adult NFT platform that was started as a DAO. And it was just clear that the the project was entirely controlled by these crypto bros who thought this was like a cool thing to do and not actually by adult creators. And similarly, we saw another pretty well-known project that launched a token and everyone in their telegram was just like, you know, when is the token going to the moon and not actually caring about the creators at all. And what we found, you know, knowing the, knowing our space pretty well was that if we were to start out with a token launch or a DAO or any kind of decentralized model like this, a lot of the creators that we wanted to bring on board would not be familiar with that and would probably find it intimidating and not be able to participate without a very large amount of education. And our approach, you know, a lot of people like to say that the key to mass adoption of Web3 is education. We disagree with that. We think that in order to reach mass adoption, you need to make platforms and projects that are accessible to people without needing education to take part. And if if you're creating something that's not accessible to people who don't have access to that education, then you're still creating, you're still gatekeeping, essentially. And so our approach has been 
create our project in such a way that it feels very familiar, similar to other platforms that our creators are used to, and then gradually start to introduce more shared ownership and more voting rights and more decentralization. And maybe that will involve launching a token later. We're not really sure yet. We're exploring a few different options, you know, DAOs, traditional co-op models, or kind of smaller shared ownership structures. So the way that we're doing that initially built into our business model, there's already an element of shared ownership because we use NFTs to help creators have greater control over their content so that they earn money every time their content is shared. Unlike the status quo where a lot of fans, you know, screenshot content, they put it on other sites and the creator never earns anything from that. And the fans have ownership because fans can now make money from reselling content and are rewarded for helping creators grow. So there's already just that element of ownership in the business model. And then additionally, we ensure that all our users have self-custodied wallets on the platform so that they're the ones in control of their funds. So right now, that's kind of the element of decentralization on our platform. Unlike other platforms like, say, OnlyFans or Patreon, where the platform itself is controlling the creator's funds and they can only cash out, say, every two weeks or every month, or they can get their funds frozen for months at a time, which has happened on some platforms. Our creators can cash out their, their funds immediately because they own their wallet. When a fan pays a creator, those funds go directly to the creator, don't even touch our accounts. We just take our platform fee. So that's the element of decentralization that works now. Another element of shared ownership that we're introducing from the beginning is creating a brand ambassador program where those users, as you mentioned, who are most engaged in promoting us, we've offered to share 20% of our first year's revenue with them. Now, that is not kind of an ideal purist model of shared ownership where they have shared equity, but it is something that they understand and that is very easy for us to accomplish from the beginning. Another element is ensuring that we have creators who are investing in the platform. So we have one OnlyFans creator who's already invested. We have another quite big OnlyFans creator who is very likely going to invest soon. It's important to us that we have creators who have ownership in the company. But as you said, Sasha, that's not an ideal solution because it's only accessible to people with money. So I'm thinking a lot right now about how do we, um, how do we share ownership and voting rights further with all the creators on our platform moving forward. Um, But it's a little bit of a difficult question because in this space, you'll have some creators who will be involved throughout who, you know, are established and they're really invested in the platform and they're going to be core to helping us grow. And you have other creators who maybe they're just starting out as a creator and trying it out. Sometimes people do this for a few months and then they quit. So it's a question there about you know, do you give them a few tokens for every post they make? Or what do you do if a creator then decides to leave the platform? It's not easy. And I think people are still, it's kind of an exploratory experiment. Yeah, absolutely. If, so the questions you're asking, we see this from every single founder and CEO. They all have similar, almost sometimes almost the same questions. You know, it's like, how many tokens do you give to which user at what time? What if they leave, you know? And yeah, you're right. It's an exploratory space. I mean, there's still a lot that needs to be figured out there. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring all these companies together to answer these questions jointly, you know? So we want to create these templates that allow us to, yeah, all pull the, the, the experiments and then just say, okay, this is your early adopter template and it distributes tokens like this. 
and it claims them back like this, or there's a decay function to it because if the user leaves, you know, um, it doesn't make sense anymore. Or there's this, I don't know, like the top contributor or top star template that then has the setting in there, checking your via API, checking your system. If it's more than 90% usage every month or whatever metric you have, then you get a certain amount of tokens. And if you drop below, you lose them. You know, these are the things we're trying to figure out. So I'd love to have a chat about that at some point. Yeah, that would be great. So I want you both on here at the same time, right? So I guess if you think about your own experiences as entrepreneurs, and I believe, Jessica, this is your first venture, but maybe I'm wrong about that. And Sasha, you were thrown out of your last company. So no, but seriously, like what fears do you have? It seems like it's fairly easy for a lot of founders in this space who are growing up with the ownership economy or have been exposed to this to give up ownership that the concept of giving up ownership, I'm going to give away this, but it's going to make the pie bigger, seems to, particularly probably because of the early stage of the company and the the equity is kind of fake value at this stage, it becomes easier to give something away that doesn't have a lot of liquid value. But in your own experiences, what worries or fears do you have around giving up governance or structuring governance as you think about kind of the next three to seven years you're going to put into these ventures and the fact that you probably want to get something out of these ventures financially, right? And you want to ensure that you're able to navigate this to a successful exit. Maybe Sasha, we can start with you because you've been through this one time before and seen kind of a, an outcome where that didn't happen. Yeah, you could say that. (laughs) We've had a a mini exit with the first company. I'm sorry to put you on the spot like this, man. I don't mean to, uh, I don't mean it's all good. I have so many seven out of, seven out of ten ventures, right? So it's it's fairly common. I've I've got cool stories from the trenches. I'll tell you that. Um, no, but the so I'm honestly not in it for the exit. As long as I can live comfortably, I'm okay. You know, I'm really doing this because I, I want to change things. Would it be nice to have more money? Sure, up to a point, right? Not going to lie about that. But um, that's not why I'm in it for. And also, I think you know the way I think about this is different. I, we're literally trying to build a network organization where the initial entity that starts things will over time just be another node in the network, which means there can be an exit for us and our shareholders, but that doesn't mean there can't be more nodes in the future organization that might be be bigger, you know? And this is really, we're trying to innovate where it starts with the central. I think you have to unpack that because for someone who's not looked at some of these models, maybe you could just walk through exactly what you mean by that. Yeah. So you're going to take the 30% of this cap table, right? And effectively build these nodes and how will you do that? Yeah. So we're doing that right now. We're looking for talented people to join us who would be essentially running a new team, a new entity that's part of this network, right? So let's say we have a, let's do a really simple example as an external sales node, right? So there's um, someone who is really good at, uh, you know, convincing education platforms to share ownership. So this person comes to us and says, I want to bring your product on code to market inside of this vertical. And then we say, okay, we're going to fund you with, you could call it universal basic income, where we give you, we pay you for three months. In that three months, um, you help us onboard one or two customers or whatever. And once you've done that, you get ownership in Recursive's entity and we get ownership in your company. So we have a shared economy now where we're saying, we will support you and fund you as an entrepreneur, freelancer, or as a node. Um, whatever you want to call it, to get started starting your own business as a creator. And you're just selling our software initially, right? And if you want to be part of the network, 
you have to reserve 20% of that cap table, of your cap table, to spawn and incubate another node. You don't need to know what it is. You don't need to know what it's for, but you have to have that reserve. So we're forcing everyone who works with us inside of our network organization to effectively create a reserve and a, um, for a new node. So this way, you now have uh, the first node. The first node might spawn another node and another node and another node. And that creates a resilient system where any one of these nodes could be the next billion-dollar company, right? And successful businesses breed successful businesses. That's the whole idea behind it, right? So now we're sharing upside in the, as a network. We're mutualizing risk. If one of the nodes dies, the other ones can still survive, you know? So it really changes how you think about organizations and sharing ownership. And that's really the big vision behind Recursive, you know? So I want to go into a little more detail on that, but Jessica, why don't we kick things over to you before I, I kind of drill down with Sasha? Sure. So the question was, what are our worries about decentralization and particularly of governance, right? Yeah. As a founder, as someone who's spending most of your time thinking about this venture, the average venture takes seven years, right? So you go into this and it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a commitment. And so what are your like, how do you approach this concept of shared governance as an early stage founder? Yeah. So aside from the question about accessibility that I already discussed, I think that, you know, I think it's beautiful in the Web3 space that there's so much excitement about decentralization. And for me as an anti-capitalist, like, that's really awesome to see that there's like this cult around actually creating shared ownership and which is quite a, a contrary to capitalist model. However, I think that there's some over-romanticization of decentralization in the space and that people in the space kind of view decentralization as an inherent good. And I'm a political scientist, so there's a lot of literature in political science debating what's the benefit of more decentralized versus centralized governance and the trade-offs that that involves. And so, for example, the United States was founded to be a more decentralized government. And that is good in some ways. It protects local interests, but it's also caused a lot of problems with inefficiency. And I think for an early stage company, if you decentralize too much, it can be difficult to make the quick decisions that you need to make in order to ensure the company can survive and grow. And we have seen that happen in some DAOs um, that have tried to do similar things and been unable to make the decisions that they need to, or they devolve into infighting with all of the members not able to agree, or one person you know gets angry and leaves. So I think it makes more sense at a really early stage to have a core team who's making decisions. And then as you're able to, and as you grow, um, and as you're able to create kind of a company culture and systems for decision-making, start to enable more voting um, from the community. And that doesn't necessarily have to happen through a tokenized model. I think tokens are a really cool way to do that in a way that it's programmed, but that can also happen through like just creating a voting system on the platform for your users to vote on new features, for example. I think sometimes people in the space try to come up with a blockchain-based solution for something that already exists. So the way I think about it is that initially what we're doing right now is just talking with our creators pretty frequently. We have weekly Twitter spaces where we take questions from them. We have a Discord chat with them so that we know their opinions on things. And then in the future, I would like to introduce more voting on specific decisions. But sometimes 
there are decisions we have to make that it might actually be counterproductive to open up the decision to the community because, for example, we might be constrained by legal regulations or by payment processor requirements. And so the thing that we might like to do or that our community would want us to do, we're actually not able to do because we're prevented from doing so. And sometimes that requires a level of knowledge that only the founders would have. And that would take quite a long time to educate everyone about. Makes a lot of sense. And are either of you considering giving whoever the stakeholders creating value? Maybe it's one of these nodes for you, Sasha. It's a creator for you, Jessica. Voice on the board, or have you kept the board pretty much? I guess Jessica for you and Daniel. I mean, how are the board structured in, in each of your organizations? For us, we're very early, so it's pretty much me and my co-founder Dan, and then we have um, our other team members who have equity one of whom is an OnlyFans creator, so so she has a voice as well. Um, in the future, I think one thing we could do is do like a creator advisory council. That's something I've seen some other platforms do so that um, they have a seat at the table or we could potentially enable creators to like vote for a representative to be on the board. I think that would be a cool thing to do and have kind of a representative democracy. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's worked well in, I mean, obviously in the supervisory boards and in German law, where you've got a lot of like, the co-determination law, where you've got employees and labor unions on the board in a bunch of Scandinavian countries as well. Once they hit a certain size, I mean, I guess the question becomes like, at what stage do you do that? And are there triggers once you hit a certain revenue threshold or employee threshold? Um, but that that's what I think is kind of the exciting work that you're doing, Sasha. And Sasha, is it just you in control over at uh, OwnCo? Yes, I'm the sole dictator. <laughs> For now. That's how you know it's going to be successful. But I'm benevolent, you know. No, <laughs> we don't have a formalized board and uh, I'm quite constrained with, uh, you know, things that, uh, shareholder protections and uh, things like that. But who's, uh, just, on, who's on the board? Is it, I mean, if you don't, don't mind talking about it. You don't yeah, have one. You don't have one. Okay. I think that'll come with the next round now. Um, and do you anticipate any sort of community involvement at the board level, or do you think it'd just be founders and investors? So here's how, I, yeah, good question. So legally, maybe I'm not opposed to it. I How I think about governance is uh, completely different to, like, I think most people, I think it's not about the menu, you know, and like letting people choose something. I think a lot of the conversation needs to shift to who designs the choices that are on the menu, like the dishes that go on there, as opposed to picking and selecting and voting on, I want this, you want that. You know, because a lot of the decision and a lot of the influence and how where something's moving is happening way before that, you know, like a two party system is not really a democracy, like to be fair. So for me that, you know, I have a pretty radical view on that. And I think that's the first thing to think about governance. And then the second is, do we really have a centralized board like in a, with the one CEO that knows everything and a COO, a CFO in the future? I don't think so. I think you'll have network organizations that will need to micromanage locally their own resources. And if they don't want to be part of the larger network anymore, they should be allowed to quit and taking with them their economic power, right? And I think that is it's all academic right now. But I think that is a lot more interesting than saying everybody gets one, one member, one vote, and you have to understand the issue at hand in some far removed setting, you know, as opposed to the things that really affect me that I want to vote on, you know? You know what I mean? Like, I think there's a lot to rethink here. Yeah, but I would I would push back on that a little bit because it like things like network effects, right? And online platforms and brand identity, like these intangible assets or intangible value within a company that a group of people are working together to create. It's very hard to 
to pull that out. And the reason why I keep on pushing on this board voice issue is not only just because of the literature around it, just speaking from my own experience. So, you know, 10 or 11 years ago, we effectively, I sold my company, essentially merged it into another company and, and the GNA essentially fell away because we had all these synergies It instantaneously became profitable when we did that. And it started throwing off a ton of cash. And I had a minority position. I was the chair of the board at a minority position though. And as chair, even with a significant minority position, the there something happened where the CEO started to essentially increase his salary linearly with the, the SaaS fees we were generating. The SaaS fees started generating a lot of SaaS fees. So we had a big problem, right? And there was very little I could do short of First off, if I didn't have information rights, if I didn't have a seat on the board, I never would have been able to figure this out. And another situation more recently, three years ago, where I actually had a 49% stake in a company and the CEO effectively with one investor committed fraud or was was about to commit fraud. And luckily we had warrants to get over the 50% threshold. And so once you take 50% control under Delaware law, you're just effectively you have complete control over a company. But in both of these situations, not having board voice would have been a huge issue. And for your own organization, Sasha, where you've given 30% of the economic interest to the community, but then for them not to participate in governance, I just wonder if that's something that like I understand it as a founder, right? You don't want to give away governance because you really feel like you you need to be able to move quickly. You need to be able to make decisions quickly. But at the same time, I wonder if maybe the model here is going to be that, you know, in these sorts of organizations like MinStars, like Go once they achieve a certain valuation, there is that seat on the board for whatever that stakeholder is that's creating value, the creator, the the node in your network, you know, whoever it is. And maybe that should be part of the organizational design in these organizations that are trying to, I think, avoid the cooperative model because there's so many pitfalls in the cooperative model. But at the same time, the cooperative model really identified that you need that governance to some extent to solve against situations where you walk into a room and people say, yeah, maybe you shouldn't be here anymore, right? Or the situation with Juno and Get, where the drivers were involved and then they got nothing out of it, right? So having a seat at the table, being in the room, and having that articulated through voice, I think, is is quite important here. So in these last 10 minutes, um, maybe we could switch gears and just talk about the funding environment of the last three months and how things have uh, how things have changed and what you guys are hearing from investors. Or not. I mean, you know, we don't have to. I mean, I think both of your companies are going to be super successful, right? And so yeah. how is it like, I think to the extent that you're not, have don't have investors, you know, beating down your door, I think there's something seriously wrong with the market, right? So it'd be interesting just for the founders that are listening to this to hear about what you guys have gone through over the last three to four months. So you've both been trying to raise rounds, you know, Jessica, you at a seed seed stage and, and Sasha, you at a later stage. Pre-seed, yeah. Pre-seed. Um, well, I, I can state the obvious, which is that the funding environment has not been good in general in the economy, but especially in the blockchain space with what happened with FTX, which is very unfortunate for those founders which are building, you know, genuine products which aren't trying to defraud anyone. But you know, we still have we still have interest. We I think have turned a little bit away from the VC environment recently towards raising more from individual angels and especially creators now, which has gone well. I think that individuals are perhaps a little bit less scared off than VCs, which are even struggling to raise from their own LPs. 
like we had one VC that was quite interested in investing, but then admitted to us after stringing us along for quite a while that actually they they didn't have the funds or the liquidity to invest. And they thought they were going to be able to close their fund and actually hadn't been able to. Let's, let's state who that was just for, for everyone here. No, no, I'm just, I'm just uh, I'd, I'd rather not because, uh, you know, they might still invest later. We'll see. <laughs> so uh, but it'd be nice to have those metrics yeah, of entrepreneurs, right? Like someone should create that. Like this VC <laughs> sucks, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. They would talk about market power. Huh? No, but like, um, I, we've had similar experiences as ago. And are, are the, is the investment community shying away from shared ownership and governance, or they just want to see more, you know, higher revenue and higher cash flows and just want to see better metrics? Like, or has the conversation fundamentally shifted and people are like, look, this crypto stuff is BS and I don't understand the stuff. I don't even want to touch it. Yeah. So I think like we, we were, we are speaking with investors like late last year and Q3 and then beginning of Q4 really had a, a few more conversations. And like some of the crypto funds, like they literally just ghosted us. They went from next week's investment committee to gone, like never heard of again or seen again, you know? And then you see like the, the partner tweet, like d- completely defraud and like freaking out. Oh, FTX, what a scam, you know? And <laughs> so there was a couple of Web3 funds where we were like, guys, you must have had all your cash on FTX. And some of the more traditional sort of Web2 investors, yeah, I think they they you know there was a more, well, there was a time where they didn't touch anything that had crypto or token written on it with a with a ten foot pole. I think that's changing again. We've been raising from like unicorn founders that are angels, and yeah, we're we're gonna raise probably in yeah in the in the near future, but uh, we'll see. Fair enough, fair enough. And I guess next six to twelve months, what are you hoping to accomplish in each of these ventures? If we got you back on the pod, kind of mid this year going late into the summer, what do you hope to see happen? Well, so when I was last on the on the pod, we weren't live yet. We were still building. We're now live. We've launched our beta, um, which is very exciting and surreal for me to see this thing that was a figment of my imagination become reality. And we are very soon going to have all 50 of our beta launch creators on the platform. We're doing beta testing for the next three months or so. So what I would love to see is that we begin to get fans onto the platform and that those creators, fans start to test it out and give us feedback. We've gotten some great feedback from them already and that we're able to continue to build out new features that make the platform easier to use. We had one unfortunate snafu, which is that we planned to use Wire as one of our payment processors to enable fiat to crypto top-ups and Wire unexpectedly went bust. But now they're no longer bust, they claim, but they haven't communicated with us. Um, So that's one thing to be determined. But we're adding a few other payment options so that we're not beholden to any one processor. Luckily, that was something we were already planning. And then I would love to see as well um, more brand awareness within the NFT community so that we can bring on both the Web3 community and the traditional creator space. And additionally, continue to bring on larger name creators. Um, we've gotten a number of, of larger creators on board in the past month. We attended the AVN Expo, which went, went really well. Um, so yeah, continuing to grow and actually see adoption on the platform. Awesome. And Sasha? Yeah, I just want to say super cool. Um, I love what you're building. And uh, yeah, obviously rooting for you. Uh, similar for us, uh, you know, my co-founder, Harry Spieler, would probably say... Um, 
you know, focus on go-to-market and product and SaaS, which we are focused on. I personally, I would love to see, you know, I, I get very excited about, you know, launching the first sort of decentralized nodes that become part of our network so that we can make progress on that, you know, sharing ownership, not just with our customers, but also with entrepreneurs that want to join us, start new nodes. So yeah, that would be amazing. And I think other than that, we do want to get more customers, want to make them happy. I think there's a lot of exciting projects. And then just figure out some of these repeating, like frequently asked questions around how do I share ownership? How do I get started? And, you know, and templatize those. I think that's the next step. Awesome. Well, thank you both for coming back and talking about the experience over the next three months. Uh, Hopefully we'll have you back on in, in six months or so and see how the journey's going. Yeah, Sasha, you might have just acquired a new customer. Let's chat after this. Let's chat. I'd love that. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks, guys.